Welcome to the Souls Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soulischurch.com. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication in all uncleanness or covetedness, let it not even be named among you as it is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have already sung to you, recognizing that is who you are. That's good news for us this morning. That we get to have you as our forever dad. And we get to be your forever kids. And that's our hope in life and death. And God, that's our hope this morning. That's why we're here. Um, we're all here because we equally need to, need to be reminded of that. That our lives are in your hands and you're the one that's leading us. You're the one who's watching over, watching over us, covering us. You're the one who's shaping us. You, you seek to make us who you've called us to be. And, and so we just present every piece of our put together and broken lives before you this morning. Knowing that you see us, knowing that you truly know us, God, knowing that you still love us. And we ask this morning that our mindset wouldn't so much be on where we're at, in our performance, Lord, in our, in our faith, but may we more be focused on whose we are and where you are. You're here with us, working, speaking. And this morning, there's a fresh opportunity for the ministry of your spirit to change our lives. So we have our word open, your word, God, our Bible's open. We have our hearts before you. We ask God, you'd open us up to you, remove anything keeping us from that, and ultimately, God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. Well, we are nearing uh, just about the last lap, maybe the last leg of the race here through the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. We have been studying the book of Ephesians for about almost four months now. This is an incredible first century letter that the Apostle Paul, the great pioneer of, of the church planning movement of the faith, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter to, the, to a church, a young church that he helped plant and pastor, the church at Ephesus. Uh, Timothy ended up kind of taking over that church and the leadership. But Paul is writing to this church, which is in modern day Turkey at that time. And he's writing to them with the heart of encouraging them to live in Christ. That key two word preposition shows up more in this 
small epistle than anywhere else in the New Testament. This theme that through Jesus, through the work, when we talk about and we think about the cross, this idea that, that Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, this whole thing happened where he went to a cross and he was crucified and he died and then he was resur- claimed to be resurrected from the dead by over 500 eyewitnesses, uh, most of which have written about it here in the, the scriptures. What, what, what Paul is saying about that event is that that event matters for your life right now. It ma- There's a lot of events in our lives that matter for our lives, but nothing can compare to the effect of the cross, to the effect of what's called the gospel, the good news of what God has accomplished in Christ. And, and to kind of summarize that good news, Paul would say, really, that good news results in a position. That's what that good news results in. It results in a new position for you, that you are now no longer positioned just in your sin or in your separation from God or even in what the Bible calls being in Adam, which is in the fallen condition. But through Jesus and through his cross, you and I, by faith, were positioned in Christ forever. What hope there is to know that we are in Jesus through what he's accomplished. And Paul wants Christians to really put their roots deep down in that. To not just hear that in in one ear and let it go out the other, but to allow that truth to saturate their souls to the extent that it begins to transform their lives, everything about their life. And so that's what Ephesians is all about. Like how being in Christ changes us. How, how it's meant to change us. And every week we're looking at a different aspect of this and we've made a big shift in the book where Paul is talking a lot about how we walk this stuff out. And I don't know if there's more of an exhortive and practical call to a new life in Jesus than what we read here, or really what Emily read over us here in Ephesians 5. Um, so here's the theme. If you'd like to jot down notes, go ahead and put this down as a title or a big idea of what Paul is saying to us in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, we have a call for those of us who are in Christ to be, notice this, imitators of God. That's the theme. This is a section of scripture that says to us who are in Christ, to live your life as an imitator of God. It's Ephesians 5.1, the first verse we read. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. What an interesting exhortation. Uh, The word there for imitation or imitator, this is what we want to be. We want to be people that are imitating God. It it literally means to mirror or to mimic. The Greek word here that's used for imitator, some translations translate it to follow, but really imitator is the most accurate word of what we're called to do here. Um, And it's from this Greek word that we get our modern word for mimic or mime. Remember mimes? Remember those things? I think they're still big in like urban areas where they try to get your, you know, take your money, but um, both like pickpocket you and make you pay them for doing their tricks, right? But uh, mimes are, are famous for for mimicking the movements of individuals. I saw a video online recently of a a mime that was walking behind this guy and like a whole crowd was watching the mime do this and the guy didn't know, but he was just walking down the streets of New York and the mime was just like walking behind him doing the exact same motions. And it's that kind of concept of mimicking, of mirroring that Paul is saying should be a goal of our lives. Think about this, that we would mirror and mimic and imitate. Now think about this again. God. Imitate God. Now, let's just be real here on the front end. That is a high and lofty assignment. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? Like, we're not saying imitate this follower of Jesus even. I mean, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this. Andrew Lundy, here I am 
in the flesh in every way imaginable. I am a human, I'm fallen. And I'm called to imitate as a creature, the creator. I mean, and that can be hard to fathom. We think about God as all-knowing, all-powerful, all-perfect. How could I as a fallen creature even fathom the idea of imitating him, being like him? Well, the illustration that Paul gives us helps us, doesn't it? Like telling me to imitate God is one thing, but saying, be like your dad, I can get that. Especially the older I get and the more I realize my wife is like, you're your dad. You're him, okay? Uh, right, dad? My dad used to say growing up he, when his, in his epic accent, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, Andrew, okay? And as a kid, I was just like, okay, but this apple rolled down the hill, dad, okay? <laughs> and um, it turns out that's not true. And, and, and I can understand that. Imitate God, that's one thing. But listen again, imitate God as dear children. I can get that. Be like your dad. You know, this is what kids do, right? If you have children, you, you've learned this. This is a natural reality of kids, for better or for worse. Let me say that again, for better or for worse. There's no such thing with kids as do as I say, not as I do. Have we learned this? You ever noticed a behavior in your child that you were mad at until you realized it was a behavior that they caught from you and you're like, mm, okay, Don't, I, I should correct you right now, but my moral authority just went out the window. It's just true. Children emulate and imitate their parents. I want to show you a great visual of this. Um, this is Jimmy. By the way, this is Jimmy. I don't know how I could summarize Jimmy more than a picture like this. Um, Jimmy is the embodiment of this photo. He's chill metal. That's just Jimmy. Like, if you know Jimmy, chill but metal, okay? This is Jimmy on his first day of school, back to school here. This is his first day of work at Solus. We were going in for our first day, and I snapped a quick photo of Jimmy on February 6th. By the way, Jimmy's birthday's tomorrow. Can we shout that out as well? <laughs> Celebrate the man, the myth, the legend. This was like a natural reaction. Hey, Jimmy, he turned around and just threw up the chill metal Jimmy, Jimmy sign, rock on for the Lord. Now, this is amazing. So a few months later, it might have been a month or two later, we had our Easter service. I was, I was thumbing through the pictures that Cameron had sent over, and I found this picture this, is, this completely happened by happenstance. I found this picture of Jimmy's oldest son, Phoenix. Come on. Come on, that's incredible. Be imitators of God, just as Phoenix here is naturally taking on the characteristics of his dad, Jimmy. The resemblance is uncanny there, and of course, the natural gestures. This is what Paul is getting at. Uh, this is actually, can I tell you this? This is what we see in Jesus. Notice this, Jesus said this about himself. In John 5, uh, 5, 19, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. It's a really interesting insight to the life of Jesus. But what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. See, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5, 1 is to be like Jesus. To, to be as Jesus is to his father. To, to do whatever you see the father doing. And here's the reason why. Listen closely. Because in Christ, you are his child. Be imitators of God. Notice this. Not so that you will become dear children. Don't live a certain way to where like you finally are resembling God. And then because you've looked like him, he now accepts you. That's not the idea. Paul is saying here, you are 
children of God. And the key word there is your dear children. I love that word. In the Greek, it means your beloved children, your favored children, your children that are delighted in by a heavenly father. You don't have a reluctant father that had to put you in his family because Jesus died for your sins and he had to put up his end of the bargain and kind of be like, all right, come on in. No, this has been Paul's point of Ephesians. Remember Ephesians 1? Paul's like, look at what gave the father pleasure. It gave the father joy and pleasure to purchase your life from death and adopt you into his family. That gave him joy. For you, no, for, for you to no longer be just a slave to the world and sin, but to be the very son and daughter of God. Here's what John says in 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we shall be called children of God. This is what Paul is getting at. Be imitators of your Father in heaven because you are dear children and your father wants to see his resemblance in you as his kids. That's what this passage is getting at. But even still, let's stop for a second and take another step back. How do I even do that? Imitate my father in heaven. And Paul will give us the answer. Go ahead and write this down. How do we imitate the father? Paul would say this. We do it by looking at the son. We imitate the father by looking at the sun. This is what's really cool about Ephesians 5, and it's, it's crazy to me that anyone could have an honest reading of Scripture and not see the divinity of Christ as plain as day in the Bible. But chapter 5 here is a great example of this. Paul's like, be imitators of God just as his kids, and then it goes on to say what you should imitate about him, and then he points to the works of Christ. How can I imitate God? Well, look at how he's displayed himself in Jesus. How do I imitate the Father? I look at the Son. Colossians 1.15, jot this down. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We're sons of the Father. We want to be like him. Well, how can I begin to be like my dad? Well, I look at the Son. When I see the Son, the Bible says this, that when I see the Son, I see the Father. Remember that great story in John 14 where Thomas is like, Jesus, we want to see the Father. Show us the Father, Jesus. And he, he says to them, Thomas, you, you've been done seeing him. That's basically what he says. Why? Because you've seen me. You've seen me, the express image of the invisible God. No one has seen God at any time, but the Son has declared him. So if you want to know what God is like this morning, in order to be like him, like I do as well, we zero in on Jesus as Christians, we don't just believe that Jesus gives us a nice ang angle or insight to God. Like he's one of many prophets that kind of guides the way to more uh, of God. If you kind of fit Jesus into whatever your worldview is, you'll get some nice benefits. No, the scriptures paint Jesus as the absolute vision of God. As the way to know for sure what God is like. You know, it's, it's why as Christians, listen, we're called Christians. We're called Christians. You know, that, that wasn't a title that the early church came up with, like in a branding meeting, you know what I'm saying? At the early apostle round table, like, guys, this is going really good. Dead people are coming back to life. We're healing people. Masses are getting saved. Jesus is alive. We're all about to die, but everything's good. Biggest question on the table, what do we call ourselves? This is gonna matter for centuries. 
Like, what's our name gonna be? And you just imagine Peter throws out something ridiculous, like the God Squad. It's like, Peter, be quiet, okay? Okay. But they're trying to imagine, like, and then, they, and then someone says, what if we're called Christians? That's, okay, here's a um, spoiler alert. That didn't happen, okay? The Christians weren't called Christians by themselves at first. They were first called Christians at Antioch. When the world looked on at them and they saw the resemblance of Jesus, they saw this imitation kind of thing happening. And the word Christian literally means little Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing if, listen, if the world called us Christians as much as we call ourselves Christians? You get that? If the world were like, you look like Jesus. You serve like Jesus. You love like Jesus. You extend your hand in compassion. You care for the things of of Jesus like Jesus. See, that's what Paul is getting at. And this is really the goal of our lives, that we would be imitators of God as dear children, that we would take on the life of Jesus. Um, Let me also say this. This is what first century discipleship actually looked like. You know, we use discipleship today as like a catch-all word for anything spiritual done in the church. It's like we, we watch the heat game. Uh, sorry, what did I say that and just bum myself out, you know? <laughs> we got the flag raised above your head this morning, clearly. You know what team we're for with the black and red. But, but you know what? Someone prayed beforehand, discipleship. Or, or whatever the case may be. It's like we got a, it's a church thing, discipleship. Now, it's fine, okay? It's fine if we want to use that word to summarize the goal of advancing people's spiritual development. That's great. But discipleship meant something before it meant everything. And in the first century, discipleship meant that I am going to prioritize, listen, I'm going to prioritize the, my entire life, everything about me, around apprenticing under the way of this person. It wasn't even strictly a Christian thing. It was also a Greek practice. There was Hebrew and Greek discipleship that had its its differences. But the main idea was, I'm going to follow this person. So in Jesus' culture, when he called his disciples to follow him, it didn't just mean like, you know, like, like follow me on Instagram, like kind of add me to your life and kind of sort of be after me. It was, and you saw it, it's like give up everything and your entire life now is oriented around knowing my ways and living my ways. Literally, imitating him. So, so back then, like, it was common for the students of a rabbi to even, like, take on their rabbi's mannerisms and teaching style. Like, I've, I've you know, I've, as I've grown as a communicator myself and still growing a long way to go, I've, I'm trying to find my own voice, as God has called me to be. But there's, you, you could probably create a Venn diagram of, like, the three voices that have most shaped me. <laughs> Uh, because I tend to naturally, we're creatures of imitation. You tend to become like what you value and what you see. And, and that was so true in the first century. You had disciples that would begin to look so much like their, their teacher or their leader that people would look on at them and say, yeah, they're followers of so-and-so. Well, this is the vision that Paul is giving us for our lives. If there was no other claim of who you're following in your life except for your life itself. If we were to just look at your life and look at my life, who are you following? Who are you imitating? Is Jesus a part of your journey? Is he a part of your discipleship? Or is he the focus of who you're becoming? 
And we need to be intentional about this. This is what Paul is saying. And, and Paul gives us some help because he doesn't just say do this generally. You know, you know Christians should be more Christ-like. It's like, well, what does that even mean? I feel like we all have different ideas of what they, it, it, usually what, what, when that's being employed, it's like, I want you to do a certain thing for me. I'm just gonna use the name of Jesus to guilt you into doing it, you know? Um, but what, what do we actually mean? And Paul's helping us out. So in this passage, Paul is, is giving us a couple ways to imitate Jesus as his followers. Write these down. First, he says, as those following Jesus, we wanna be purposed as his disciples, being with him, learning from him, to live like him. We, we wanna imitate first the way he loves I want you to think in your mind um, of this phrase. Copy, what's the second part? Paste. That's the modern version of this. Paul's like, I, I want you to copy, paste the love of Jesus into your heart so that it comes forth from your life. Imitate the way he loves. He says this, be imitators of God as dear children. And notice this, verse two, walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul's like, okay, Christian, may the world call you a Christian as you apprentice under Jesus first by the way that you begin to mimic the way he loves. And Paul displays here love that's in a category of its own, okay, that we're to hold our lives up against. Let's say this and think this. Each one of us, right now, going forth even from today, we are putting out a certain level of love into the world. Whether you, you like that statement or not, whether that sounds too hippie or not, it probably does sound a little hippie. Let's personalize it. You and I, we're putting out a certain level of love into our homes, into our families, into our social circles, into our friend groups. You are, whether you face it or not, putting out a certain level of love in your workplace. In the space you're at where no one knows who you are and you can act however you want because no one there knows you're a Christian, in that place, right? And what Paul is saying here is, is may your output, may your output look like the love of God. Now, Paul describes here the love of God as three things. I want you to jot this down so we can, so we can best mimic, uh, mimic and imitate the love of God. Paul says that the love of God in Christ is three things. It's, it's the standard of love for us as Christians. It's the substance of what true love is. And it's the source of our love for others. The love of God in Christ is the standard of true love for us as Christians it's the substance of what it looks like. And it's also the source of us showing that love to others. First, he says it's the standard. Notice this phrase, walk in love, and here's our standard. Here's, what we're, here's how we're called to love. It gets hard. Love the way that Jesus has loved you. Love the way that Jesus has loved you. This is like one of, one of Paul's favorite um, um, literary structures. Uh, Paul, all throughout the New Testament, he's telling Christians in their behavior to essentially make it simple and just be like, reflect God, how he's been to you, just be like that to other people. That's like Paul's main point about love. In, in Romans 15, he'll, he'll use it for hospitality. He'll say, receive others the way that you've been received. It's the standard. 
It's the kind of love we're called to. We're called to see the love of God for us as not just something that's supposed to come to us, but it's most evident in, in how it comes through us. So it's the standard. But notice this, it's also the substance. This is a really interesting concept. Paul, in, a, in the next verse, is going to contrast the love of God with the love of culture, which is essentially lust. And, and he singles out the love of God here, and in contrast to the lust of culture, he defines love in, a, in an agape way, in a whole new, I mean, this is true love. We're all looking for love, most, most often in all the wrong places. We need to look for love most centrally displayed in the person of Jesus. This gives us the standard and the substance of what love is to look like. Notice this love. Walk in love, how? How has he loved you and I? as Christ has loved us, and notice this, given himself for us. We see the love of Christ displayed here, not as merely emotional or a feeling, but as sacrificial, as self-giving. This is the nature of true love in scripture. Okay, we talked about this, I think it was last week. Mother Teresa has this great quote where she says that we can give without loving. We've all done that. Like, here you go, Okay. It's like the South Florida way. Let me give reluctantly to you without loving you, you know. I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be kind, but not nice, you know. Um, but she says that we can't truly love, though, without giving. Love, true love, costs you something. It requires something of you. What we see in Jesus, the, the greatest display of love is Christ himself demonstrating that love by giving of himself for the other. This is a whole nother love. This is a love that's displayed not, not so much as like a, a, a battle or like a dance between two people trying to love each other and mutually give back and forth. It, it's the display of like a waterfall just absolutely overwhelming its, its object. This is the love of God. It's irregardless of performance. It's self-sacrificial in how it gives. Uh, the Bible says this in 1 John. I love this. 1 John 4 says this. In this is the love of God, okay? And this is how God's love was manifested. We wanna know what love is like? Well, here's what true love is that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's true love. True love places myself second so that you can be first, so that you can be benefited. I'm gonna take the hit so that you can be blessed. This is the love of God. In this is love. I love this. Not that we loved God. That's not love. I'm not sure if you're here today and you're like confused about the Christian faith. You're like, Christianity is just about all these people that were loving God and God's like, okay, you love me. I guess I'll love you back. John's like, mm-mm, that ain't it, okay? That, that's not it. This isn't love, that we loved God. We were walking around loving him. No, don't look to humans to get the substance of love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is so important for us in our cultural moment to be a shining light in a, in a world where love is love and love is everything and love is all these millions of things. What makes us stand apart, guys, is that our love looks different. It looks different. And I don't know about you, but especially in a place like South Florida, like I wouldn't identify when people move to Boca, especially. It's like, like tell me about Boca. I wouldn't be like, well, this is the most warm and loving place you could have ever moved to. People put you, you know, sometimes like if you get to the, the line at the same time, they'll be like, oh no, you go first. It's like, I don't think that's ever happened to me in the 35 years I've lived here, okay? 
you know, and, and I, I gotta be honest, like, it's really easy for me to take on the, the level of love of culture. Do you know what I mean? So it's just like, the coldness kind of can wear on your heart. Do you know what I'm saying? And you just start to be like, there's people, you know, nobody's loving. It's like, you look in the mirror, you're like, nobody's loving. You know, it's like, I'm becoming like them, you know? And Paul's like, Christians, this is why God's gonna use you. Your love is gonna be different because you're not looking to the world to meet, you're mimicking God. You're, 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 you're copying him. You're copying, pasting how he's loved you. I, I want you to see a key aspect of this love. The love of Christ, he gave, this is so different than culture. It's self-sacrificial for the sake of the other. Let me tell you something too, like the darker the night, the brighter the light, amen? So the more cold the culture, the more shining the love. So when you employ this in your day, in your workplace, in your, it's amazing what this will do as a testament to the glory of God. And, and I want you to see kind of, there's some practical stuff here. This helps me, maybe more theology. I've never caught this, but Jesus gives himself for us as the ultimate demonstration of love, which Romans says, Jesus didn't just give himself for people that were worth it. He gave himself even for his enemies because he calls us to love our enemies, but he models it. Even when we were enemies of Christ, he died for us. But in his offering or in his sacrifice, it says here that he was making an offering of worship to God. I've never understood the cross. I've never seen that. I mean, I've read that. But to think that on the cross, Jesus was loving you and I unto the glory of God, that he was giving his life as a, I mean, there's a great picture there to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that was meant to bring a, an aroma of purification, aroma of delight and worship to God. But for me, this can change how I go into my day. What if I began to think about my calling to love as a calling to worship. That I, when I love, it's not about them and how they respond. It's not about if they appreciate it or thank me for it or look me in the eye or say thank you when I hold the door open for them because they mostly don't in Boca. Okay. But what if all that I did wasn't about letting my left hand know what my right hand was doing? What if there was a greater purpose to my love which was to worship my father? And to give, um, there's something that will shift in our hearts, isn't there? When there's people in your life that you're like, I've gotten, you know, love them as Christ has loved you. You're like, I, I can't do it. I've hit the wall. I've maxed out my love. I'm telling you, it's like a sustain. It'll, it'll just get your love greater when it's about worship. When you say, I, I'm loving this person unto the Lord as worship to God. Amen? All right, we wanna love like he loves. We also wanna love or we wanna live the way he lives. Jot this down, we wanna live the way he lives. Um, have you ever been in the car with someone and they take a really sharp turn that you, you didn't see coming and you're like, whoa, what's up, okay? Put your seatbelt on, okay? Love the way God loves you. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Paul here, some translations read um, sexual immorality or, or impurity. Paul takes a, a sharp turn, but uh, it's not really out of context as Paul here is now talking about the kind of lives that we're called to live in culture. Remember, Paul is talking about true love, and now he's talking about a counterfeit that culture is going to uplift. 
And rather than the love of God, it's the lust of culture, the lust of the flesh. And it's even here that Paul is calling us to imitate Christ. Imitate Christ in culture in the way that we, listen to this, we live holy lives. There's a specific focus in this passage on how we're to live a holy life in culture. Um, there's a focus specifically on sexual immorality. The, the Greek word there, fornication, is the word, now see if this word sounds familiar, it's the word porneo. And it's kind of like a, uh, in the Greek, it's a junk drawer for any type of, of sexu- uh, the employment of sexuality outside of the context of the biblical covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It's, it's, it's literally is fornication or sexual immorality. Uh, the word porneo is where we get our modern word porn. Pornography is filmed sexual immorality. Gra- gra- uh, graphic, the idea of graphic, it's visual uh, sexual immorality. And, and Paul is calling these Christians to be different from culture and how they navigate sexuality. Now, it's important to point out here, okay, like a proper theology of the Bible. Um, I, I think I grew up in the church, uh, in, a, in a Bible, like bold church enough to hear and to really like know that how I navigate sexuality matters. And I will be in, this was the thought, I will be in big ch- trouble if I do it wrong. And there can be co- sort of this like uh, nail that gets hammered in of guilt in the name of condemnation that um, w- with a call to purity can end up demonizing sexuality altogether and, and sort of like creating sex as this thing that's bad altogether. Like basically that's what I, th- I thought growing up, like sex is bad sexuality needs to be, like, just basically become a hermit and live in a, a monastery somewhere, okay? Um, and, and there is certainly a call to, to the, crucifi- uh, the crucifixion of the flesh. But, but first and foremost, we need to remember that when the Bible calls us out of a cultural norm with sexuality, what, what, what Scripture is doing, especially the New Testament, is it's seeking to restore us back to God's original intent. This is always the purpose of redemption, to bring us back to what God created in the beginning. And let me tell you, God created sex in the beginning. Sexuality wasn't like an accident. Like, oh, oops, I didn't really think about the plumbing enough. Or like, or like Adam and Eve, you know, they're talking to the serpent. He's like, have you guys thought about doing this? And they're like, oh my gosh, okay. Um, sexuality, think about this. The blessing of, of sexuality within the covenant of marriage was one of the first commands that God gave. That's one of the first thing that God commanded was like, go be fruitful, go have fun, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. It's, it's a gift for intimacy, which, which intimacy can only really thrive within the context of covenant. Where you don't have to put your best foot forward. You can be naked and unashamed. And you can be fully known because there's commitment undergirding what's gonna be known. That's why, that's why covenant is so important. And right from the very beginning, we see the blessing of sexuality for, for the goal of intimacy and, and joy and oneness and human flourishing. And then from the very beginning, and all throughout the Bible, it's really, the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, is just like a case study on how human fallenness also affects sexuality, the fallenness of sexuality. And, and if there was one like culture that you could zero in on, 
in the first century. I would say in, the, in this culture, it's kind of like spin a map and throw a dart and you'll find a culture where you can see fallen sexuality at its worst. But um, in that time, it's Ephesus. It's where these people are. The, the counterfeit options, which are so powerful and strong, you know, I think of it like um, a fire is one way to think about it. It's like sexuality, it's, it's been described as like fire in the right context has pr provided some incredible blessings for humanity. You know, within a fireplace where it can provide warmth, it can provide life, it can, it can cook. Um, but when that fire is outside of that contained boundary, it can bring all sorts of destruction. And we live in a culture that's kind of like, listen, fire doesn't burn you. That's what it says. If you feel it, do it. If you want it, have it. And, and it's, a, it's weird because like, we live in a time where sexuality is both like the most sacred thing ever that you can't talk about or touch, but it also doesn't mean anything at the same time. Help me out with that. How could something be everything and nothing at the same time? And, and that's where, where we're at as a, as a society. And can I tell you, that's where we're at with technology. I know when I speak about this, I'm not speaking into the air. I'm speaking to humans with sex drives and temptations and challenges and, and the the second only worst thing that the enemy has done with sexuality, especially to young men, is not, the, not just get them off track, but to shame them in the dark for their mistakes, which just keeps you in this vicious cycle. And it's into that, right? It's, it's into Christians living in a culture of just this, this pervasive message and th these, these consistent access points of sexual temptation that Paul says, live a life, listen, of holiness. What a standard. I mean, he calls us, let's, let's kind of turn up the heat for a second and then we'll let the fire bring some warmth, okay? Um, Paul says that as Christians, we should live lives of such radical holiness that there's certain sins, not even that they're not just practiced by us. Notice what he says, that they should not even be what? Named among us, which I, I wish that was true. Unfortunately, the, the reputation of the church at large in America is, is just racked by scandal. And sometimes the world can't tell the difference in terms of sexual ethics between a Christian and someone in the world. But Paul is like, hey, who cares about them in your own life? What a call that you, you would pursue a level of holiness. It'd be, you're an imitator of God. God is holy. He's unique. He's set apart. And he says, now you also be holy. And you know, you guys know me. You know that the last thing I would ever want to do is to push someone away from Jesus by leading them to think that Christianity is about a bunch of rules. <laughs> and that's not what we're talking about here, okay? Um, in fact, I think so many Christians, because we're so afraid of legalism, we've avoided preaching holiness altogether. You know, and, and I want to say this, that holiness is not opposed to grace. Earning is. Earning is, okay? Your performance determining whether or not you're saved and you're loved and you're pure, that is opposed to grace. But holiness, Paul is saying here, is the, is the outflow, it's the overworking of a life, notice this, that's been made holy. He, he says these sh things shouldn't even be named among you. Notice why, because it doesn't fit a saint. 
It doesn't fit a saint. This is a really interesting word. He says, you guys are saints. That's what he says. You know, we, we tend to think of saints as like this Navy SEAL category of Christian that really made it high up the ladder of holiness. They were really morally pure. They went to church every week and they, you know, they fasted. They did all the right things. They abstained from all the wrong, wrong things and they've reached this level of sainthood. And if there's anything that Paul wants to clear up in the book of Ephesians, it is that there's not multiple categories of Christians in the kingdom. There's two categories of people. There's people who are in their sin apart from Jesus, who God wants to save and bring to redemption. And then there's those people who have come to Jesus, who despite their performance are now holy through Jesus. This is who you are, Paul is saying. This is Ephesians 1. Paul said this from the very beginning. He's like, don't forget that, that we can bless God because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This was his idea for us, what? To be holy and without blame before him in love. So, so don't hear me say, you are only as holy as your sexual performance, as your sexual track record as how well you've managed your sexuality. Listen, as you stand before God, and even as he sees you right now, for those of you who have trusted in Christ, God sees you as though you live the life of Jesus. He's, he's in fact made a great exchange between you and his son where he took your filthy garments, placed them upon his son so that he could take that clean robe and place it on your shoulders. He sees you as holy. Such were some of you. I know we have a past the thing that we look to in the past is something farther back. It's the work of Jesus on the cross where he makes us holy before him. This is the gospel. Nobody in this room could ever scrub ourselves into holiness, right? In fact, all we tend to do is naturally throw stains on what's holy. But Jesus is the one that makes us perfect forever. Can I get an amen to that this morning? to know that as you sit here this morning, you are not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by what you've done, nor of what's been done to you. You're holy. Listen, which is why Paul says to live a holy life. He's not saying be holy so that you can become holy. He's saying you are holy, therefore live holy. He's saying when you don't live a holy life, it's like David trying to put on Saul's armor. Remember that story? David's going to battle. So he's like, I, I know what I'll do. I'll just wear, they put Saul's armor, and David couldn't even move. Okay? We've all felt this before, right? Where you went to the store, and you're like, I like that shirt a lot. I gotta try it on, okay? You go, and, and there's, the, there's, that, there's that value of decision where you're looking in the mirror in the fitting room, and you're like, no, this is a no. I'm gonna have to go back to the rack, okay? And then sometimes you're like, I can, you know, I can do it. So sometimes I'll, I'll be like pushing the boundaries because I'm like, you know, I'm so fashion forward. And so I'm like, it's not fitting, but I'm like, hey, babe, can you come in here for a second? I just want to, I won't even tell her. I'll just be like, hey, so I just wanted to see like what you're thinking. Like, how are you? And Britt is like, fortunately, um, I, the mirror sometimes is not enough for me to make my own decisions. So Britt will be like, okay, that's not working. That's not working. And listen, I want you to hear, essentially, that's what Paul is saying about sin. He's like, it doesn't look good on you because it's not who you are. It's not the authentic self that God has redeemed you to be. You're holy. 
So, so when you live an unholy life, when you live in unconfessed sin, continuing down those paths, you're, you're, you're seeking to be someone that you're truly not. Amen? Let's keep going here. We're almost done. We want to also write this down. We want to imitate the way that Jesus speaks. So we imitate the way he loves. We imitate the way that he lives. We also want to imitate the way he speaks. You know, our speech matters. Our words matter. So Paul is saying, love like God has loved you. And don't settle for the the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the lust of culture. Flourish in blessing. You're holy, so live holy. And then also he, he, he touches into an area of holiness that we might often overlook. And I'll be honest, I tend to not think enough about how much this matters, but it's my own speech and what I say. He says, neither filthiness, same word as, as used there in verse four, or verse four, sorry, verse three, that idea of impurity, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are, again, are not fitting, but notice this, use your mouth to give thanks. Um, you know, we, we don't, I think as Christians, like we, we tend to emphasize, overemphasize sins of, of the hand and action. And maybe we've gotten better, especially in the past couple decades, I feel like in the American church, we're, we're trying to become more emphasis or more focused on like sins of the heart. Sins of the heart matter. But here, the scriptures are, are elevating something Jesus taught, that, that we need to be as disciplined over what we do uh, in terms of also how we speak and what we're saying, what's coming out. Like, our words matter. It, it, it's, not just, um, it's not just wasted, wasted air. It's not just forgotten language. It, it's, it's significant. God hears it, and it matters. And so what we say matters, and there's categories here. And if I had more time, we'd talk more about this idea of cursing and, and the complexities of that. Uh, we looked at that last week with Paul, and he, he basically says, like, here's a good test for your words. Like, do your words bless or do they curse? I mean, that's what a curse means, is to, like, speak the opposite intention of God over someone. Like, blessing is when you speak God's best over them. If you think about it, you know, like, that's really where most curse words end up going, is they end up, instead of blessing someone, damning someone. Or, or say, hey, go to heaven. It's the opposite kind of curse, you know? It's that, that's one way that we can curse someone. That's one category of speech that we should watch out for. There's some things that are just like culturally impolite that if you use in one culture, nobody would bat an eye. Um, I've made this mistake in like Latin America with certain Spanish words I didn't know. I'm just, I'm just gonna confess that, but... And then there's a category of speech here that Paul speaks to that he equates to sexual immorality in its, in its worldliness. It, he calls it coarse jesting. Now, this is an interesting phrase. The, word, the phrase coarse jesting there, it has the idea of ease of tongue is kind of the concept. It's someone that, that's able to turn everything into a, uh, into a sexually charged uh, um, innuendo or, and specifically in, in a way that is, is sinful. It brings up sinful imagery. It, instead of um, honoring the covenant of sexuality, it decries it and it, and it actually, in a lot of ways, it, um, it desecrates it by being just like culture in our speech. And I don't think we think about this enough when we're so quick 
with funny jokes. When it's just kind of like a way to bond. And, but, but Paul's like, your speech matters. Why? Jesus said it matters. Jesus is like, whatever's coming out of your mouth is just really what's going on in your heart. So if there's impure speech, there's areas of my heart that aren't fully surrendered to the Lord that I gotta really evaluate. I gotta think about this. Now, there's an interesting play on words that Paul does here in the Greek. He says, um, be like Jesus. So don't, don't use your words to cause someone to, to think sinful thoughts or, or, to, or to condone sinful things, but rather give thanks. Isn't that an interesting thing? Now, in the Greek, the two words for, for coarse jesting and, and giving of thanks, they kind of rhyme. So Paul is just like dropping bars here, like a first century hip-hop pastor artist. And Paul literally is saying the two Greek words, they're similar in their sound. So he's like, don't use loose speech. Don't be quick to go this direction with sinful talk. Instead, be quick to give thanks. Instead, be someone whose, whose voice and words bring life to the hearer because they're marked by gratitude for God and gratitude for life. What we say matters. Jesus taught this, he emphasized this. He said in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. At the end of the day, a tree is known by its fruit. And we use that phrase a lot to be like, are they really a Christian? You know, we kind of like do this judgment thing. Like, where's their fruit? Well, Jesus here is talking about your words. He says, what you say is gonna reveal what's going on in your heart. Jesus here goes, you brood of vipers. Slammed them. He says, how can you, being evil, speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart, the, mouse, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you, here's where Jesus turns up the heat, that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. I'm not just going to be judged by my actions and my thoughts. I want to be judged according to what I said with my words. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." This is heavy language, but ultimately we're reminded that, that God, when he comes into our lives, he, he comes to transform our hearts, and that's seen even in how we speak. All right, let's, let's close with this last one. I'll invite the team to come up as we wrap out for this last one. The last thing Paul says is we want to imitate the way that Jesus thinks. So we, we imitate the way he loves. That's our standard. That's, our, that's the substance. That's the source of love. You know, when I'm loved by God, I'll love others. We also want to imitate the way that he lives in a holy life. We want to imitate and emulate and mirror the way that he speaks. And lastly, it really comes down to, at the end of the day, with how we think. As the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And Jesus wants to renew our mind and change our thinking. And so Paul's writing to these Christians and he's like, at the end of the day, the most important thing here, as I'm exhorting you to these things, is, is to ask yourself, like, how do you act, like, what do you actually think about this? What do you actually think about sexuality? What do you actually think about love? And what do you think about your life and holiness? How you think about it matters. Paul says this, he says some heavy, heavy language. He says, for this you know. You know this, this is true. This is how you should think that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So someone who's destined for the kingdom is not going to allow these things to persist 
without repentance in their lives. You know this. You, you know that there's a standard for right and wrong. You know that there's a judgment coming. You know that God divided the darkness and the light. He doesn't blend them together. You know this. How are you thinking about this? So he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience who are disobedient to the truth. Here's the call, therefore, do not be partakers with them, with how they think. Check your thinking. Is there any thought patterns in your life that has been influenced more by the world rather than the word? And I get it, like we're in a cultural time where everything's sensitive and you can't open up a single verse of the Bible without making an enemy. And with our heart to win people, we just want so much to, for people to know that they're loved. But we don't do that at the expense of right thinking. In fact, the way that we most love the world is we bring them the truth. We embody it in our minds because we believe the truth leads to blessing. And one of the main ways that the enemy breaks down people in culture is he gives permeating lies. So what are you being discipled by this morning? Are you a church-going Christian with a secular mind? And you've been shaped, you've been duped in the name of whatever. And Jesus is calling you to the truth, not to bind you, but to free you and to use you in a world of deception, to be a shining light. So we imitate Jesus in all these different ways, knowing ultimately that we do so as dear children. So we wanna create a moment here as we close to be dear children to our Father. I wanna say first for the, the Christian in the room that you are the dear child of God. His love for you this morning as your Father has nothing to do with whether or not you've imitated him in these ways. Isn't that good news? Because none of us can say, I've perfectly imitated God. You know that verse where Paul's like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Anybody, would anybody actually struggle saying that? I don't know about you. Follow me. Just do what I do as I do what Jesus does. It's like, I struggle to be able to say that unless that means I'm living in grace. You want to come? And so today, be reminded that you're the dearly loved child of God through Jesus. You're adopted. And if you're here today and you haven't yet come to that security, the Bible says all you have to do is simply look from your heart to Jesus and recognize that you need him. See the cross as something not just done in history, but something done for you, for your sin to be dealt with, for your separation between you and God to be solved, for you to become a child of God. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in Jesus, puts faith and trust in Jesus, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And so let's take a moment as we close this time, let's create a space where we connect with our Father before we leave. Again, if you're here new, this is a time for you to ask God to become your Father. Repent of your sin and receive him as your Lord. Have the hope of eternal life. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, why don't you just come back to your Father this morning and say, God, I wanna be more like you. Not so that I can be more of your child, but because I already am. So help me imitate you in all these areas of my life. Let's take a moment with our Father together.